Welcome, caller. You're on the line with the calls are coming from inside the podcast, an exploration of the human side of horror. Each week, we call a unique guest and ask them about one horror movie that left its mark on them. Together, we do a deep dive into our guest's personal connection to find out what horror feels like. I'm Kevin Sparrow, and this week, for our very first episode, we'll be calling Ray Goldberg to talk about the already classic 2019 film, Ready or Not. And then we'll talk more about games and interactivity in horror with the double feature follow-up Game of Death from 2017. Yeah, so I was looking up just what are horror movies, because anytime anyone asks me what my favorite anything is, I forget everything. Uh, And so I was just looking up classic horror movies, and just a bunch of images came up really quick on my screen, uh, including um, a picture of Regan from The Exorcist, and I almost shat myself. And so I turned to my fiance, Abby, and said, I'm... I'm too much of a chicken for horror movies, aren't I? And she just kind of went, yeah, babe. Yeah, that's okay. So (laughs) (laughs) even looking at horror movies for this podcast, I was just like, yeah, goddamn, I am kind of a chicken, huh? (laughs) I have to, yeah, I have to censor some of these horror movies for myself. Yeah, I love a good scare. That's what we're here for, getting scared together in a loving way. (laughs) Also, are we allowed to, I forgot to ask, are we allowed to swear? I, I mean, with this, we'll get into the swears. We'll get into the swears. On the line with me today is Ray Goldberg, playwright, screenwriter, lover of life. Ray, how are you doing today? I First of all, I love that introduction. All of that is correct. That's not always how I introduce myself, but everything you said is absolutely correct, and I am loving life today. How about you, Kevin? <laughs> I'm doing great. <laughs> um, so one thing that you told me about, you have upcoming the Austin Film Festival, which is yeah. October 21st to the 28th. Tell me about that. What is happening at the Austin Film Festival? So I'm a reader for the Austin Film Festival, so... Uh, that that's going to be fun just to hang out with uh, some of the writers whose scripts I read, but also I have one of my screenplays in the festival. And at the time of recording, I have no idea whether or not I got into the festival. So that's going to be exciting. Have you been to Austin before? I have. I, so I have a master's in playwriting and screenwriting from Northwestern. But before I went to Northwestern, I, went to a whole bunch of universities, including University of Austin. I went to, I mean, physically rolled up, not like I went to five master's programs because I'm cool and I have so much money. No, but I I visited Austin and I gotta say, the whole keep Austin weird thing was kind of going over my head. I was like, Austin's not that weird. And then I remember it was in the middle of Texas and I was like, wow, Austin is pretty weird, huh? But also everyone was like, you gotta try breakfast tacos. And I didn't know how to politely say, we have those in Chicago too. It tastes the same. Yeah, those those exist. Those were not invented. You can eat tacos anytime. And when someone chose breakfast time for a taco, the breakfast taco was born. Well, I mean, also breakfast tacos, I feel like necessitate. Uh, having eggs in them, which your average lunch or dinner taco does not. 
which I assume, uh, you know, connoisseurs, experts in Mexican cuisine would be like, you put a what in my taco? <laughs> which is all to say, I actually think Austin's a pretty cool city. It's just I really had to contextualize it in terms of Austin is weird for Texas. But I mean, then again, we don't have sh- keep Chicago weird bumper stickers, even though Illinois is definitely a different beast <laughs> we don't than need Chicago. It. People know. I think the difference is Austin is like, oh, we're not like the rest of Texas. And Chicago's like, what's the rest of Illinois? It's it's a cornfield, right? Which is, I just want to say, uh, I do not condone corn uh, Illinois erasure, comma. Oh, no, I love corn. <laughs> oh, okay. but, I am I from I the corn. Like you're from the corn. Uh, you're children of the corn, but um, yeah. <laughs> very much because I feel like there's there's something very elitist to being like Chicago's the only worthwhile place in Illinois. It's just a very elitist take to have, but also is the place that I'm from, and I can't name a whole lot of other places in Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> True. I mean, there there's at least uh, twenty or so cities scattered throughout Illinois. I'm I'm told there are many. <laughs> I have been to Rockford. I enjoyed Rockford. I was very disappointed to find out the show The Rockford Files does not take place in Rockford, Illinois. It's the name of the dude. Uh, that yeah. did not stop me from singing the theme song all day. And the locals were like, I think it's a good theme song. We don't really There's a have Rockford a, like, Files a... theme song? Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do
I really enjoy John Carpenter's The Thing. Mm. But, and I've seen it like five times, but I hesitate to look at that and be like, me. What about that is me? The flesh dog? <laughs> uh, Keith David? I don't know. Like, there's a bunch of horror movies I like that I just do not really see myself in. Yeah. But I feel like for Ready or Not, the sense of humor and the catharsis are very in line with my sensibilities. And also, it's just really nice to see a movie unambiguously say, uh, eat the rich. Mm-hmm. Eat them all up with Lil Fork. And, you know, 2019 was the year of Parasite and Knives Out and Ready or Not, which would be an incredible triple feature of Eat the Rich. But even just in terms of what the protagonist Grace goes through, I just really love charting her emotional but also physical progression throughout the movie i forgot to look up the number but they made like 17 different dresses uh, in various states yes that was my trivia question um did i did i get the number there were 17 dresses yes (laughs) 17 that samara weaving wore Mm. and then another seven that her stunt double wore so 24 dresses total that they made. Excellent. It's my favorite rom-com. <laughs> Samara Weaving and her stunt doubles, 24 <laughs> dresses. I mean, obviously, yes, her, her physical transformations from uh, various levels of being covered in blood and having uh, more and more tattered dress throughout the movie. Also, just like the... I, I, I feel like I am uh, within my rights to say this is probably not a pro-gun podcast. Comma. <laughs> There's there's something really badass about just the image of her in the wedding dress with the hunting rifle. Like that's a look. That's the iconography. But I mm-hmm. I love that about it. Also that that gun is useless. That is my yeah, favorite that, takeaway. That it ends up being blanks. <laughs> yeah. Um I think it is not yeah, the podcast is not pro-gun. I don't think the movie is either. I think the way that they use guns no. in the movie is is this very fallible, terrible object, um, yep. which I, I love like about it. Like guns and crossbows, not as helpful as you think they're going to be. Yeah, don't, uh, don't keep those around women who are high on cocaine. Sure not. <laughs> Or, or their sad sack husbands. Yeah, or their children. Um, or their children. So obviously the star of the movie is Samara Weaving. But within that, the star, the second star of the movie is Samara Weaving's vocal cords. Yes. Because she makes some banshee, feral-ass screams throughout this movie. And they're all different and they're all my favorite. And I I just, I love seeing her go from like a very snarky, um, innocent babe in the woods to just a very tired, angry yodeler. Like, so my fiance pointed out when we were rewatching the movie, like the this scream that Grace does towards the very end, like after... They try to sacrifice her for the last time. Yes. And she escapes. 
and is pointing the knife at them, the sound that she makes sounds like a goat. Yes. Which is kind of thematically appropriate for the movie, because at one point the dad says you're just another sacrificial goat. But um, yeah, like it, it feels very appropriate that she is uh, visually and in dialogue compared to a goat. And then she's like bleeding at the end, bleating. I should, well, she's also bleeding. She's bleeding, bleeding. But, uh, she's yeah, doing it all, ululating, getting into well characterization. I think right. I think what makes this movie work really well. Obviously, we love Grace. I think she's got the snark and the sarcasm even from the very beginning. Right, her first lines where she's kind of practicing. Um, her vows and then goes off script so to say uh, to talk about how she feels about marrying this family just already sets her up as you know someone to root for right there's definitely I guess if you're coming into it as a you know maybe a more cynical person or maybe just a more realistic person right you connect to her or I connect to her um pretty quickly off the bat but are there other characters that you have a strong affinity for in this movie I mean I love Daniel the brother Adam Brody's character I I was never an OC kid so I didn't really have a prior uh affinity or hatred for Adam Brody but you know like it's interesting that you spend the whole movie kind of questioning Daniel's allegiances. He has that line toward the beginning, you know, you don't belong in this family. And I mean that as a compliment. And you you can tell that there's, you know, no love lost between him and his family. But uh, the question is always like, God, I love the scene where he just walks in on her and just walks past and is like, I just came in here to get a drink. And like, not only does he give her a 10 second head start, he goes one, 1,000, two, 1,000, two and a half, 1,000. Like, it is clear he's, you know, his heart's not in this. But he, but he also, he's still playing the game and he's still being an asshole. But then, yeah, as, as the movie continues, you realize... Daniel's kind of the only other good person in this movie and I use good lightly in his case but you know like in the end he's down to clown he does the right thing I feel like the movie uses the question of whether or not Daniel is on their side to be a smokescreen for the question of whether or not Alex is on her side Mm -hmm. because you just kind of assume from the beginning yeah Alex definitely is a good husband and wants to get Grace out of here. But then he has the whole speech about like, you're you're the one who wanted to get married. I didn't want to do this. And like, she rightfully like screams and punches him. And is like, are you saying this is my fault? But yes. like, the, the way they end that scene is, look, he's not a very bright young man, but he definitely wants the best for you. And then I, I think the wondering whether or not Daniel is going to do the right thing distracts the audience from the eventual realization that oh it alex is one of those if i can't have you no one can kind of bastards like yeah can we talk about alex (laughs) oh alex this business i actually in researching i came across an article in polygon um by 
Emily Heller, and it talks about this very thing, right? That early on, the movie sets up him as really he's going to go for what, you know, will benefit him the most. Mm -hmm. That he says, oh, I did this, you know, for you. You're here because you wanted to get married. You would have left me if you didn't. And so the control over her body, right? The control over a woman in your life. I mean, it sets him up as not a great guy, even though obviously the first time I watched the movie, I, you know, I had sympathy for him. I'm like, oh, I feel bad that he has to go through this. Um, But it is set up very early on. Like, this isn't a good thing. Like, why even bring her into this situation at all? I appreciate that he ends up being a villain because even the first time I was watching it, I was just like shaking the TV. Like, why did you do this in the first place? This is your fault, Alex. They were not going to come after this girl if you hadn't brought her here. Which also, I kind of going back to the whole Grace is absolutely not part of this world. Like, of course, she's not even part of the family, but like, it's not just that she's poor, it's that she was like, they mentioned she was in and out of foster homes her whole childhood, and the whole reason she really wanted to get married to Alex is because she's never had a quote-unquote permanent family, and they they really established, like, the ideal plan was, we're gonna go, we're gonna get married at the family house, and then we're gonna leave, Like, she is not in this for the money. She is in this for Alex and hopefully even more family. And that definitely sets her apart from even, you know, I think her name's Charity, Daniel's wife. Yes. Who's, like, very much in it for the money. But whereas another movie could have just written her off as, oh, yeah, she's a gold-digging bitch, which, like, they do say at one point. But also just, like, her her very quick line about like you know where i came from i would rather die than lose this it's like they still make her gold digging bitchery uh an intriguing part of her character and not a reason to like write her off as a person yeah yeah even though the the, everyone in this family is terrible they're still compelling characters um i mean my personal favorite is emily She's a whole mess. God, Emily. I love it. (laughs) She's such a mess. It's entertaining. And I feel just because she, for me and her husband, uh, I think have the highest comedy quotient, I suppose. Like, they're the most comedic characters. Um, Also, Emily has the highest kill count. And, yes, she has the highest kill count. (laughs) I think I just love seeing putting the comedy on a woman, right? It's just does not get to happen. It happens more frequently now, but looking at the history of film where women are not given that role, I think for her to carry it, it, it's just a thing for me personally. Like I really enjoy seeing, and I think she's just so funny because it's such a heightened wild performance that she's giving. Yeah. She is so chaotic. I I also like, I didn't really think about this until the most recent viewing, but it would have been so easy to just have her be the comic relief, but she does have that really nice scene with Daniel where he's saying, you know, maybe all of us deserve to die. And then she gets really serious for a minute and says, my children don't deserve to die. 
and he he kind of feels bad for a moment but then the kid wakes up and is like i shot her mommy and she goes you're doing great sweetie and daniel just gives them this look like no one is safe here everyone sucks yeah yeah the children do deserve to die but like she she genuinely loves her children well because you see the glee on their face when they're gonna watch uh grace get sacrificed so it, it does push very much into that like these kids are already poisoned by this toxic entitlement of the family um that they've already been normalized to this way of life that uh as alex describes earlier right he thought that the sacrifices and everything they did was normal um and that's kind of why he left so i yeah the movie is very canny about making you understand these characters right you think it's awful what they're doing but you're also able to see oh that makes sense this is why rich people are like this because they don't have anyone telling them differently that their lives Mm -hmm. are privileged and it shields them from having to face realities (laughs) that people like grace have to experience every day and it's also it it does kind of treat um privilege as a virus you know like i you don't get a lot of becky's backstory andy mcdowell's character who just on the record i have never really been a big andy mcdowell fan i think both in groundhog day and four weddings and a funeral she is hands down the weakest link but this this is the first movie where i was really like i can't imagine anyone else but andy mcdowell playing this role like because she's so sweet yeah at the beginning but like she's sweet in a very street smart way like she smokes just as much as grace does and she kind of gives her the wink like i know you don't belong here yet but i can tell you're gonna fit in just fine and like you're set up to really appreciate her like even though you don't know exactly where she comes from, you know that like, okay, I can relate to her, I think. She she definitely seems like this has not really poisoned her. But then as soon as shit hits the fan, she's the one to grab all the weapons and go, all right, folks, you know what we got to do? Button up your shirts, uh, roll up your sleeves. It's time to kill someone. But like, she she doesn't seem joyful about it. Yeah. She's just like, well this is this is the bargain that we made and like even though she's not as you know bloodthirsty or evil as some of the characters may be i truly think the dad is just evil i think in i always hesitate to refer to people as evil even in a fictional context because what is evil but the dad is just on some other level uh, especially just him shaking the box at the fireplace at the end and being like, I control you. No, you don't, jackass. <laughs> yeah. Entitlement. The, the the level of entitlement that you are screaming at the devil that you're the boss? Get out. That's a different movie. <laughs> like, everyone in the family has entitlement it's just interesting to see how all of the people who married in 
have differing levels of relationship with that entitlement, but they're all still willing to do whatever it takes to keep it. Yeah, but because you can't see another way, right? That's the whole thing about entitlement privilege, right? And hopefully that movie can give us a message for all of us, right? To dismantle privileges we already have because you don't often see it play out. And so you carry it forward because you don't know any other way. Actually, one interesting thing that is another thing I just thought about this most recent viewing is does the curse apply to the servants? I don't think it does. I don't think this is Beauty and the Beast rules where if if you're in the house, Mm. you count. I I assume that the curse does not extend to them, and yet they all rat Grace out at any opportunity because, like, my reading of it is just, they know that if anything happens to the Ladonis family, their meal ticket is gone, and so they don't mind, you know, having Grace be the sacrifice in order to keep living a good life. Even, like, the the most quote-unquote innocent of the waitstaff is the, the girl who dies in the dumb waiter. Like, she she's just like, I'm not even a maid. They just think I'm hot. I'm just here standing around yeah. and look pretty. And, but then the second she has an opportunity to rat Grace out, she does, and then gets killed in a dumb waiter. I've never seen a dumb waiter in real life, I don't think. Uh, It's one of those things like quicksand or lava where it's like, I haven't encountered this, but movies have told me to stay far away from it. So if I ever see a dumb waiter, I'm not even putting a finger near that thing. Dumb waiters are for getting killed in. Don't do it. I think dumb waiters were just invented for horror movies. I don't think they (laughs) exist in the real world. They're, They're a fantastical creation. I mean, they're very theoretically convenient, but um, they're just like a trash chute that has a higher death rate. Yeah, terribly so. Yeah. I don't know. I can't think of a time when I've seen a dumbwaiter used in an innocuous way in a film. <laughs> they weren't thinking of those things in the uh, turn of the century. No. It's like any dangerous thing. Sure. Put it in your house. I mean, I think that continues on the theme of, of rich privilege is just, hey, we're going to put this dangerous shit in our house to make lives uh, mildly more convenient. I'm sorry, if any of you at home have dumb waiters, why? But also, I don't mean to impugn your honor. Yeah, we don't want to dumb waiter shame uh, on no. this podcast. <laughs> but maybe dumb rich waiter, shame. More like great waiter. Yeah, that waiter's so which good. Again, which again? Even the the word dumbwaiter is ableist. It's like, uh, how yes. if you had a waiter that couldn't talk because he was made of wood? <laughs> like, why do we call it that? Like, I understand why, but why? Yeah, because ableism. We hit the nail on the head. If you can, if we can make something terrible... We will. Ableism. No one is safe from ableism if we're making fun of our murder elevator. Yeah. Maybe we should just change it to that. That's yeah. that's our contribution to the, the world <laughs> and to limit ableism is from now on, this will be referred to as the murder elevator. 
Hello, Jeeves. Could you please bring me the telephone down in my murder elevator? Sir, why do we call it that? Because we respect different levels of ability in this house, Jeeves. <laughs> You're right, sir. I'm sorry. Into the murder elevator it is. <laughs> so one thing, coming back to this, t- we talked about at the very start is the swearing. Um, I love the swears in this movie. Oh, I think it's just a very artful use of expletives throughout. Um, I like the use of cock as just a random swear. I love Andy McDowell saying holy dick <laughs> uh, as a swear. It's great. There's an interview with the cast and she talked about that something she took from her father. Oh, like nice. it was her choice to use it in the film because as a way to honor him um, and as something that was like meaningful to her. I love when that car passes up Grace, like when she finally gets to the fence and she I was just, just looking to see if I could find the full quote. Yes, if you can find the full quote and give us a dramatic reenactment, um, I'm but all for I'm, it. I'm not going to do it justice, so I'm going to do a dramatic reading of it as opposed to doing a smart waving impression. Okay. What the fuck is wrong with you, you fucking asshole, piece of shit, little tiny dick licker fucking asshole fucking die? Beautiful. Scream. Fucking rich people. Yes. That's good screenwriting right there. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Just just an incredible, just all of the rage she has had within her up until this moment. Yeah, if, if we're coming for, you know, if we're eating all the rich in this movie, that, that dude who drives by and says, get out of the road, eat him. He's on the list. Yeah, hopefully. Oh, so, mm, okay. Sorry to to derail the swears, but... um, No, no worries. What happens right before she gets into the street where she uh, rips into her skin to get through the gate? So... I'm wincing. This is a podcast, but you cannot see how how deeply wince-filled I am. (laughs) So, I have a question for you, Kevin. Did you see this movie in theaters? I did not. I saw it, uh, like, right after it got released to home video services. Got it. I was living in Los Angeles for three months when I saw this movie, and uh, I did not have uh, many friends in Los Angeles, so my friends were uh, movies. (laughs) (laughs) And I can can tell you pretty much every movie that came out summer 2019, because that's what I did. I was literally just seeing every movie in theaters in 2019. And so uh, ready or not, like the day it came out, I was like, this looks dope. And the reason I specify watching it in theaters is because I've seen this movie several times. Um, All but one time was on a TV or a computer with friends and family. And most of my friends, if not all have reported that the part in the movie they think is the most gross is when she gets out of the goat pit and mm. the the hand that has a hole blown in it lands on the nail. And that's, for those of you at home, Kevin's nodding and wincing again. Always. That's a very nasty moment that I keep explaining to people. I think the part where she goes through the gate is much grosser. And most people go, well, I mean, that's a really gross part, but it's not that gross. 
And then I finally realized what the difference was. In theaters, on a giant screen, you can see that when she goes through the gate, you can see the meat. Like, when the picture is blown up, you can see, like, it doesn't just tear through her skin, it tears through, like, a layer of muscle. Yeah. It's really gross. And to prove it, like, when I was watching it with my fiancé, I ran up to the screen and was just pointing at Samara <laughs> Weaving's meat. And Abby went, oh, yeah, you're right. That's really gross. <laughs> you became a football announcer, like, here, in the third quarter of the upper <laughs> shoulder. Uh, let, let's get an instant replay on that, Bill. <laughs> let me circle this. That's a tendon. <laughs> Yeah, I did, I have a projector, so I watched it on that in the most mm-hmm. recent one. And yes, it's very, I do agree with you. I feel like that the um, makeup design for that moment is so yeah. much ookier. It's, it's a deep laceration. I feel it all across my back. Mm-hmm. Also, the thing with the, the thing with the nail, that was an accident. And like... She does need to make the choice to pull her hand back up off of the nail. And, and the scream she makes after that is pretty great, too. Yeah. But, um, like, when she goes through the gate, she knows if she's gonna escape, she needs to keep going. And so there's something even grosser to me about that part that she knows what I am about to do is going to rip me to shreds. And that's okay, because that's how I survive. Yeah. And that's pretty like, metal. Making that choice is and going through it, right? Like once you get that first initial cut, it's like I could just not do this, but she pushes through, she does it, and we're all better for it. Cuz I think yeah. without that, we wouldn't get that amazing string of expletives yeah. popping out. Also, I I really commend this movie for, on a narrative level, moving the goalposts. Mm. Like, the whole movie could have been, can she get out of the house? Or shit, the, the, the whole movie could have been, can she just hide until sunrise, like they said she had to? Or it could have been, can she get out of the house? But no, she eventually decides, uh, hiding isn't going to work, I need to get out of the house. And then she gets out of the house, and then it's, oh, shit, there are rich people with a huge property. Can I get off the grounds? Right. And then she does get off the grounds, and then it's, okay, well, now I still need to get even further away. And she's walking on, you know, like, this forested highway, and then it's, can I get the car? Yes, she did get the car. Uh, she got that car. But even that didn't worry. And so, like... <laughs> Just the fact that they keep changing what her goal is, you still get those little victories to tide you over. Like, yes, she did it. Now what? Yes, she did it. Now what? And the fact that she does succeed so many times, it makes her feel like a more active character and also just a a really talented character. Mm-hmm. Like, she's she's surviving because... She has her street smarts and she's fighting for it. And so even though it takes the whole movie for her to ultimately win, the fact that they sprinkle in those little, it's almost like a video game. It's like, good job, Grace, you beat this level. Now it's time for the next level and it's going to get harder. 
And it's just really fun to see her alternate between victory and, oh, Jesus, now what? Yeah, and that she's someone coming in without necessarily skill, I think, is really good to see, too, right? It's it's not mm-hmm. something where she... I don't think she does anything that's particularly out of the reach of the average person. <laughs> this is not an average scenario. Yeah, she, but... she's not like a black belt or something. She's just, she's just a girl who grew up in foster homes and probably is very scrappy. Not probably, she is very scrappy, but presumably she learned a lot of that scrappiness from, you know, having to fend for herself sometimes. Yeah, she had to do it, that from a young age. Um, yeah, I think that comes mm-hmm. across clearly. Uh, and you got to be, you know, scrappy right off the bat if you're going to get choked out by Andy McDowell. Yeah. I mean, as a screenwriter, are there any things that you take away from this? Um, I guess on a screenplay level? I don't know if you've read the screenplay outside of seeing the movie or just in watching it, does it offer any uh, tips, any advice that you would apply to yourself? I haven't read the script, but just going through the actual narrative and dialogue aspects, there's just so many good lines in this movie. And honestly, I think the the opening, not like the 30 years ago opening, but like where you first meet Grace, I think is actually not a very well-written scene. Uh, just because her... I, I love the snark of her screwing around with her vows but there's a lot of well we are getting married well as you know my family is very rich because we we have a gaming dominion and oh this is my brother and like there's a lot of stuff that they have to get out in a short period of time they don't necessarily do it very um suavely i think the exposition is not this movie's strong suit but just (laughs) there's a lot of very fun ways in which they uh establish the various characters' relationships to each other. One of the ones I wrote down was when Emily finally shows up and she's talking to Helene, which in a second we need to have a Helene corner because what a wild character. But uh, Emily shows up and she says, Aunt Helene, it's so nice to see you. And Helene immediately shoots back, brown-haired niece, you continue to exist. Yes, it's amazing. But like, First of all, the casting of 30 years ago, Helen, in the opening is incredible. Yeah. Like, you can just tell once Helen shows up in the present, oh, that's the lady from the beginning, isn't it? Because she's just got that stern, but also kind of round face. It's very difficult for a round-faced person to be stern. I say as a very round-faced person. Person? Person. But our Helene, should, should we have our Helene corner now? Yeah, I think this is the Helene corner. Like, the the fact, the very first thing you learn about her is that she is the last person who her spouse picked the hide-and-seek card. And you would think, in another movie, she would be, like, a sad, lonely old spinstress. Like, I lost my husband... And now I don't know what to do with myself. No, she's like the most bloodthirsty one. Because, Mm. like, my my reading of it is she's like, well, they killed my husband. I have to believe that it was for 
a good cause to continue existing. And she goes whole hog on the whole Mr. LaBelle thing. And, you know, <laughs> just even like that, she's comedic relief too, but in a horrifying way. Like when yeah. the, the second maid dies and she is still just kind of gurgling with the crossbow, crossbow bolt in her mouth. And then Helen just goes over and decapitates her. She's like, I don't, do not interrupt me with your death rattles, child. Like, <laughs> Helen is bonkers. Yeah, it's macabre, but I love that moment. <laughs> no. Within the Helen corner, uh, we're also having the Mr. LaBelle corner, maybe, because I think that's a very important part of Helen's character. We got a sub corner. <laughs> We got corners and corners. We got corners and corners. (laughs) Like, um, well, the dad, Tony, I think, is like, you know, he's he's very big on uh, the ritual, but it seems like he doesn't really believe in Mr. LaBelle. Mm. Like, he's very insistent that we have to do this or we're going to die. But then whenever Helen brings up Mr. LaBelle, he's like, oh, my God, stop that's like a fairy tale. Like, don't worry about that. Like, when Helen's saying, hey, Alex is going to go far. He's the only one who's seen Mr. LaBelle in this chair. And Tony just brushes off like he was five. He was making shit up. I don't know. Like, it's just very interesting to me that Tony is the one really leading the charge on the we have to do this ritual or else. But he doesn't really know what he thinks the or else entails. It's like, we're going to die, but I don't know how. And Helen's the one who's like, because of Mr. LaBelle. And he's like, shut up, you crazy old lady. And then, no, no, she was right. (laughs) Yeah, because it sets it up throughout the movie that there is a real threat to them, right? That at least all of the people who, like, haven't fulfilled their end of the bargain have met some terrible fate. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there's enough of a threat, even if it could all be circumstantial that yep. that you do see that playing on all of their fears mm-hmm. um why the family makes the decisions they do I, I yeah and not that they should necessarily be doing that maybe they could <laughs> break it in another way and again like it, it's something that they have been perpetuating because it's not just oh once upon a time my great-grandpa got a bunch of money from the devil and now we're all paying for it. Because, so, I noticed this time, they say, anything that we should ask for, Mr. LaBelle would give us. Which I read as, they would have been plenty rich, but they kept asking Mr. LaBelle for stuff. Because when they're listing all the stuff they have, like not just like the materials they have but what what they own like they say they have four pro sports teams they they've branched out into uh card games board games all this stuff that uh the great grandpa never had and so one could think like on the outside oh well they just used the great grandpa's fortune as seed money to get these other things but you could also see it as no, they've been asking Mr. Lodomus for sports teams and more companies. And it, it, they're not just uh, 
they're not just on the hook for what the great grandpa asked for. It's they've been asking and asking and asking. And so they have they to keep paying to their for debt. it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's good. That's an interesting reading too. I didn't think about that. I kind of, when I've, the you know, the couple times I've seen it, that my thought is that, I guess, intergenerational wealth problem of, right, you don't know where it comes from. And so you might be responsible for something that you didn't, I don't know, sign up for. But, but yeah, I think it reads better if you're like, they also kept trying to add on to that, right? Add on to their wealth, add on to their success. Um, and that put them into this position, right? Uh, of owing Mr. LaBelle something more and owing something to maybe society mm -hmm. that they can't repay. <laughs> but yeah, like we mentioned earlier, that having any kind of wealth kind of gets into your head because you want to hold on to it uh, even if you're just marrying into it and so even if it is just intergenerational wealth you know that's enough to give them privilege out the wazoo but these definitely seem like the kind of people who it's not enough to have they they want to double down ante up so to speak i don't gamble i those are terms i think I used correctly, but they're not even happy with the intergenerational wealth. They want to get more and more and more. Yeah, it's a snake eating its own tail. Yeah, it's, it's Katamari Damacy. That might have been too Calamari Damacy. <laughs> they, they dine on Katamari Damacy. Calamari Katamari. For, for the listeners, and we're not going to get into a Katamari corner... Uh, because it's really hard to play Katamari if you're stuck in the corner. Oh, no, it's I Katamari Damacy. We can talk all day. I want to roll everything up. Basically, it's a fun Japanese game about uh, rolling up everything on Earth. But also it's a metaphor for capitalism, because the only point of having is to get more. And the, and once you have everything, you're just kind of like, now what? And like in real life. I don't think it's possible for any one person to have everything. I think that not just like societally impossible, just like physically impossible, <laughs> but in the game, they are able to say, well, what if you did have everything on earth? What if you had earth? And the answer is, well, now you have to roll up the rest of the solar system. But uh, anyway, if you, if you too are interested in eating the rich, or uh, playing games that uh, the the subconscious moral is maybe capitalism sucks. You should play Katamari Damacy. It's very cute. It's very fun. There's lots of bright colors. There's fun music, and it is a scathing indictment of capitalism. Yeah, I'll see if we can uh, throw in a music cue here. There's a very specific Katamari Damacy song that I need everyone to hear. Do, 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 do. Is it just like the main theme that you were thinking of? Oh no, it's the it's there there's a track um I know you love me. I wanna roll you up into my life. Yes, that the lounge track. Heck yeah. The whole soundtrack is just bangers on bangers. Speaking of soundtracks, wait, let's bring it back for a second. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> to the movie or <laughs> To the movie, oh, okay. to the movie. Uh, so there's like, there's two songs played in Ready or Not. 
Uh, one of them is the the hide and seek song, mm-hmm. which you could have told me, oh yeah, they found this weird party track from the sixties. Apparently, it was written for the movie. Yeah, and um, it it it's a great track. It sounds like uh, the Monster Mash's third cousin. And it's very spooky. And when it plays at the beginning, it's creepy enough. But also when Mr. Bale uh, drops the needle at the mm-hmm. end, like that, that seems like definitely a tacit endorsement of, yeah, Grace won. Now you all get to eat shit and die. Yeah. But also I love the very end where when Grace is leaving the burning mansion and you, you hear the guitar version of, here comes the bride and then you realize oh my god no this is a cover of love me tender yeah, it's so good. that starts with that guitar riff it's like oh what what a great soundtrack choice to end that movie on yeah music coordination on point it's so mm-hmm. good yeah it's it's great because yeah especially in the end even that story is all the music story is culminating right we've heard all these tracks in different ways before and now they're kind of coming together to create this beautiful little moment at the end. Um, well, any last thoughts on this movie? What is, is this, is this a recommend for you? Is this something you'd want more people to see? This is a strong recommend. Um, I was trying to find out where it was streaming and the, the answer I eventually found was no, you have to rent it. You have um, to rent or buy it. You have it. to rent Currently. or buy it. And at this moment in time. Uh, and so I was looking at Amazon.com. Fuck you, Jeff Bezos. Speaking <laughs> of things we hate, but I was like, I I can give him four ninety nine and not feel horrible at this moment mm. in time. But I was like, but I want to buy the movie, and so I ended up just renting it on Amazon with the post-it note in my mind to, yo, if this shit ever comes out out on Criterion. I would love a Criterion Collection Blu-ray of Ready or Not. Oh, yes. Uh, and until then, I'm just probably going to purchase it on whatever Blu-ray mechanism I can find, not from Amazon. Um, yeah, it did feel very funny renting this movie from Amazon <laughs> and being like, yeah, capitalism! Yeah, it's all, I mean, I rented it from, <laughs> from Apple, so safe. Um, well... <laughs> Again, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. You know, you're giving Bezos your money or you're giving whoever runs Apple these days your money. I was going to say Steve Jobs, but I don't think his ghost really reaps the benefit. Um, I Ready or not would beg to differ. You know what? If there's Mr. LaBelle is a, was a real person and is a spirit demon thing now, maybe that's what Steve Jobs is. Uh, <laughs> Well, see, Looking forward question, to in the afterlife is was Mr. LaBelle a real person? Or was he the devil the whole time? Because LaBelle is an anagram of Belial, which is one of oh, many sure. names for the devil. So maybe he was always the devil or maybe he was a real person who then became the devil? Question mark. But uh, regardless of what Mr. LaBelle is or where Steve Jobs is, <laughs> uh, I highly recommend that by some mechanism whatever you feel comfortable with please watch ready or not it's a good ass movie it's a good it's a good time a little bit bloody yeah. a lot of swears oh but a lot of bit bloody lots of swears do you want me to read it again i won't <laughs> but um just go watch the movie and count the fucks 
Yeah, give a fuck, all right? <laughs> and go fuck yourself, Justin. <laughs> you need to go fuck yourself, Justin! Great. Well, thank you, Ray. Where can we find you on the interwebs? So on the social medias, yeah. I am uh, on the hellscape known as Twitter at <laughs> oh. Ray N. Goldberg and for Nicole, that's my middle name. Uh, and because there's too many Ray Goldbergs on the internet. Uh, I also have a website, which is RayNGoldberg.com. Uh, that's just kind of where most of my work lives. Uh, once events are allowed again, you may or may not see listings for uh, live lit readings on my website. I do live lit from time to time. I feel like doing live lit over Zoom is a, a mild bummer, so I haven't been doing those oh. in the Zoom era. But um, when when live lit is alive and well. Um, Come, come see me say sad and funny things and funny, sad things and sad, funny things. And you can find those uh, event dates on that website, rayngoldberg.com. Great. Excellent. Well, we'll keep uh, an eye on that. And please give Ready or Not a watch. Yeah. And give a fuck. And give a fuck. In Ready or Not, the main villains built their fortune off of a gaming empire. In the Saw series, John Kramer tells us, I want to play a game. And we listen. Seeing games in horror movies references the interactive nature of the genre. Horror movies ask us to play along. Who done it? Who's next? And what will be left of them? In the essay, The Spectacle of Correction, Video Games, Movies, and Control, Evangelos Cialis uses the Saw movies to explore how the use of interactivity and video game aesthetics can push viewers from passive viewership to more directly confronting the ethical questions that horror films raise in their own lives. The growing interactive nature of movies in general, and horror films in particular, has not only happened through the proliferation of the internet, if we look back to the Blair Witch Project's pioneering marketing campaign, and the ability for more people to more directly connect with each other, but also within horror films themselves. The feeling of immersion within the horror genre is a factor that, while it can provoke anxiety, tension, or despair for some viewers, allows for a more embodied relationship that we are more likely to find in these films than other genres. That takes us to our double feature suggestion, the 2017 Canadian film Game of Death, available on Shudder at time of recording. Game of Death takes the elements of interactivity and increases them by connecting to arcade legacies, current social media like Snapchat, and the cultural tension between solipsism and connectedness. We are dropped in at the start of the film with an old-school 16-bit video game-style montage over the opening credits, putting us into the role of player. We then jump cut right into a Snapchat-style video of Beth calling her brother and telling him Ashley wants to fuck you. We see a lazy, alcohol, and drug-filled day with these characters intercut with more social media videos before the actual game of death is introduced. Once the main characters find the board game, they get disinterested in it pretty quickly until they find out that if they don't play, they die in an extremely bloody and grotesque way. And they also discover that they need to kill to play. As viewers, we are more invested in the game 
than the characters are first shown to be, and so we become drawn into the ethical concerns more directly. As the characters split apart, do I mean that as a pun or don't I? In deciding the right action to take, kill or be killed, the movie spirals toward ever more lunatic heights, crescendoing in a video game style animated murder spree montage before the final act of the film. Although there are a few visual inconsistencies in how the movie is shot, and you may find the Gen Z stereotyped characters insufferable, I recommend Game of Death because it has a great blend of fun and darkness that I find makes it very engaging, though content warnings for extreme gore, unexpected incest, and a child and elderly people uh, put into peril. With that, make sure to dial us up again next Tuesday as we chat with our guests about Oculus and Mirror Mirror. Click. Did you hang up? No, I just said click.